is an obedient leader. He is poor, but also generous. And today we're going to talk, we're going to conclude with talking about how Jesus is both holy and loving. So we need to talk about two things to set the stage for today. The first is an understanding of what does the word holy mean. So often I think if we think of holiness, we might think of um, pretension in religiousness. <laughs> so like the Pope seems very holy and maybe it's like his special clothes and his special building and... Um, you know, like the, the specialness of like everything around the Vatican. And it's like a little bit right, okay? It's not so much pretension, but the word holy just means set apart, so other. Oftentimes we talk, um, I think it's the prophet Isaiah says that the Lord's ways are higher than our ways. So God thinks a different way than we do. He is different from us. He's other than us. He lives differently, um, in, as Jesus lives differently in his life on earth. And God is, he's special. Um, that being set apart with that, we often find there are some um, rules, for lack of a better term, ways that we can live in, uh, that we can follow in Jesus' holy living. And there are certain practices that Jesus engages in and certain practices that Jesus does not engage in. And that sets him apart and makes him different than the rest of humanity with all of our failings and temptations and um, just missing the mark, our sin. So holiness is to be free of sin. So Jesus is holy. He follows all of the rules, um, but he is also loving, and he extends grace to all of us. The other thing that I want to talk about before we really dig into this is um, talking about the stages of spiritual development. Um, something that I find really helpful was a description of spiritual development by the author M. Scott Peck. He published a book, he published a book in the late 80s, early 90s, and he identifies four stages of human development that can kind of be reflected in our spiritual development, and maybe even that we see echoed around in other aspects of humanity and culture. So stage one are babies, and this is like the chaos stage, which is where all the parents giggle a little bit, because you know what I mean when I say babies are narcissists. <laughs> they don't have the ability to empathize with others. They don't have the ability to follow any rules. Their needs will be served because they are babies. They are limited. Um, when people don't grow up past this stage, um, you often see them ending up in jail. Um, and interestingly enough, you see them ending up as CEOs of companies. A lot of CEOs are people who, they, uh, they don't follow any of the rules, they just go, 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 charge along, and uh, it's just a funny thing that M. Scott Peck notes of like, this is the place where we see this reflected. Stage two would be when you get like your little kids. So if you've ever met a four or a five-year-old, who has a younger sibling and has been sure to let them know what the rules are. You're not doing it right, that's against the rules. So stage two is blind faith, right? Like we're figuring out that there's a system, we're going to follow along in the system, and we're going to do the right thing. Stage two is reflected in society in churches, often. Um, sometimes maybe in the Republican Party. Don't worry, I'll pick on Democrats too in just a second. Um, stage two also shows up in the military. Lots of structure, lots of rules. There's a right way of doing things. Stage three is the questioning stage or the skepticism. So this shows up in university. It, um, the Democrat Party is often stage three and stage one. So if you average it out, like everybody's sucks at something. Um, and, and, um, and stage three is where we start breaking the rules. Like if you think of a teenager going through teenage rebellion, I'm questioning the rules just for the sake of questioning the rules. Why do I have to do it this way? 
I don't think I do have to do it this way. I'm going to dye my hair a different color. I'm going to date a bad guy to annoy my parents or whatever. And then stage four, of course, would be adults. And M. Scott Peck calls these the mystics. So the thing that happens with stage four is the stage two people feel betrayed by stage four, and the stage three people feel betrayed by stage four. Because stage three, like, they look at stage four, these are, these are, what happens in stage four is there's like a returning to the rules, but it's not for the rules' sake, it's for those underlying principles of what is the good that is brought about by following the rules. And so stage three is like, we were rebels together, and now you're following the rules again, what gives? And stage two is like, you look like you're following the rules, but I don't think you really mean it. I don't feel like your heart is in it. You're not judging stage three with me anymore. What gives? And so this is kind of like a paradigm through which we can understand. I find it really easy then to talk about um, Jesus, who both follows the rules and offers this incredible grace to every person. Like Jesus is stage four. He's fully transcendent into a place of not following the rules for the rules' sake, but also not rebelling against the rules for rebellion's sake, um, but, uh, but really um, living in a holy way because it is what is best and giving grace to those who have fallen short of the mark. So with that, let's turn to um, John chapter 8. Oh, no, you know what? I have a whole other thing about this, stage 2 and stage 3, because, and I, for, I almost forgot about it, and it was the funniest part. Okay, let's not, let's not go to John 8. Let's go to John 8 in a minute. Let's talk more about these stages. So um, here's a classic story that stage 2 loves. Maybe you've seen this before. Have you heard about the wolves in Yellowstone when they were returned in 1995? So before 1995, um, there were no wolves in Yellowstone National Park, and the park had all kinds of ecological problems, just things that didn't seem to be going very well. The deer didn't have any natural predators, and so they overate the, the vegetation. The rivers then like spread out because the banks would collapse because they didn't have big root systems in them, and there was like kind of a lack of uh, ecological diversity. In 1995, they reintroduced wolves, and this is like a stage two love story. There's a YouTube, it's about five minutes long, there have been a gazillion views about while, while wolves do kill other species, and so they're mean, wah, wah, they created this ecological um, uh, effect that just echoed down through every aspect of the ecosystem and made Yellowstone into a paradise. So they started hunting the deer, which killed a few of the deer, but also the deer stopped going into the valleys and the gorges, which then allowed grass to grow, and the trees grew quintupled in height in only six years. And then beavers started showing up because they wanted to chew on the trees, and then the beavers created dams, which made room for all these other creatures. Birds returned because they were going to live in the trees, and then coyotes got killed by the wolves, and that meant more rabbits and mice, and more rabbits and mice meant more hawks and falcons, and the rivers all deepened and, and widened, and so much stability came from the introduction of like a bad guy, this predator, in the food chain at Yellowstone National Park. And so my father, who is former military and a uh, <laughs> pretty conservative guy, like looks at this and is like, see, I win, Kara. <laughs> in every argument, like, wolves are good. It's a good thing to have rules and limits, and with adversity, we become stronger because we overcome it, and with challenges, we develop discipline, and tough love is a good thing. And so then, with my heart that might be just like a little bit more of like a bleeding kind of a liberal heart, I say, well, what about the prison system in Norway? Like animals, shmanimals, look at this guy. He looks like he just moved into college. 
he actually kidnapped and tortured someone in Norway <laughs> and is in prison. And this is what prison looks like in Norway. Not like in the United States, where we have only 5% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's prisoners. They have very few prisoners in Norway, and even violent and dangerous criminals are put into this setting where there aren't bars on the doors, and there aren't um, like solitary confinement or a lot of these psychological punishments that go with living in a, in a terrible environment. But they are put into an environment where things like emotional health and recovery and sobriety are focused on. And their recidivism rate, when they introduced a prison system that's much more empathetic, reduced by more than half. So they went from like between 40 to 50% recidivism, which is a criminal commits a crime, they get out of jail, they commit another crime. That reduced to less than 20% in Norway. So some empathy and some compassion and some love wins the day in how the prison population is in Norway. It actually helps their whole economy because when you have fewer people in jail, you have more people contributing to the economy. Most of the people that go through their prison system are a part of job training programs or vocational programs. And so when they get out, they're able to make a better wage and provide a better life for themselves. And the, like, it's, just like a, it's just like a liberal paradise, right? Like, oh, look, love one and these guys. So of course, I put the wolves first so I can say animals, animals. But I'm sure you know we could put this in the other order. My dad would say, well, yeah, that works for criminals. But look at nature. You know what I mean? So I'm not trying to pick a side here. I'm just saying, like, look how we can focus on one side or the other side and fight with each other, even though I think my dad and I would both agree that like a prison system that can actually reform criminals and build the economy is a good thing. Introducing wolves into an ecological system so that there's more biodiversity and more natural health for the environment is a good thing. These are both good things. So we don't have to fight with each other quite so much as maybe we uh, get tricked into doing sometimes. Okay, so now with that, let's take a look at the Gospel of John starting in verse 8. So Jesus is teaching, and starting in verse 2, we, uh, we get this story, and maybe you've seen this before. At dawn, he, Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the, uh, with the woman standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. Will you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the model that we have in the life of Jesus, the words that he spoke and the actions that he took that we can reflect on and talk about and meditate on over and over again for a lifetime. God, you are so good. You are holy and you are gracious. Lord, would you just let some more of you seep into us today? Would you call us to live a life that reflects that of Jesus? And would you strengthen and empower us to do so? 
God, would you make us righteous, and would you make us gracious? Would you help us to reflect your love and your justice to a watching world? We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're familiar with this story, um, you might be a little bit numb to it. That happens to me with Bible stories sometimes. You know, like I've been hearing this one um, since like when I was young enough in church that they didn't feel weird about having to use the word adultery. So like maybe not when I was five, but surely by the time I was a teenager, I've heard this story. But I think to recapture the significance here, it helps me to kind of set the scene in like movies or TV shows or something where I do have still a big emotional response. So like I really like legal shows and you know there's always an episode where there's somebody on death row and maybe they're wrongly accused or we're getting right down to the last minute and they're on the table and they're strapped down and they've got the, you know, drugs that put a person to death and, um, and then like the governor calls and the phone rings and there's a stay of execution or there's a pardon because there was evidence and the person is, is freed, you know? And I'm just like a weeping mess, like there's a mom hugging her son who was about to be wrongfully executed by the state and our lawyers are the heroes and, and that kind of a thing. And, I, and when I think about my emotional reaction to that, like that's the same as what this woman went through, you know? Like as far as justice is considered in ancient Israel, like she had been on trial and she was facing death and Jesus stepped in and pardoned her. Or maybe, you know, with recent events in Afghanistan, the U.S. military leaving and then the Taliban taking over the country in just a few days, maybe like me, you're reminded of stories like in the movie or the book The Kite Runner, where actual events of women being stoned to death for adultery have happened in recent years. Like, I mean, I think The Kite Runner is like, like that was like the 80s and the 90s. Um, <clears throat> and so I think like with that, like when I think about that, when I think of an actual woman who maybe was alive at the same time as me, getting this kind of treatment at the hands of her society, it really drives things home for me a lot more. In fact, maybe we could just take a moment together and pray for peace in Afghanistan. I'm just gonna, just like, let's just take a break. We'll get back to the sermon in a second, but let's just, um, let's just cry out to God on behalf of um, oh, that nation. In Jesus' name, Lord, we just pray for the women in Afghanistan and the children and the people of peace there. Lord, would you protect them and would you provide for them and would you bring provision and justice and a free life? Would you draw near and draw all of the Afghanis toward yourself by your spirit and declare freedom over them and let them find you and know you and live in harmony. God, it's so difficult to sort out <laughs> from the news what's good and what's bad, and was this just Vietnam all over again? Did the president make a huge mistake? God, I just trust all of that into your hands, and I say that I know that you love every man, woman, and child in that nation, and that you can draw close and that you can bring about a good thing, even after a long time of there not being so many good things there. And we ask for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So now when we consider the Pharisees about to stone this woman to death, like that just really changes the picture for me suddenly, because I don't often think about the Pharisees and the Taliban as having anything in common. 
but I mean, this is an ancient culture, and things were really different then. So this really helps bring this story home for me. When we look again at what Jesus does here, from our modern American perspective, we can see that this system of rules is cruel and brutal, and we can see that Jesus steps in and offers grace in a way that is good and right. One question that's always worth asking with this story is, where is the man who was caught in adultery? Like, the woman didn't commit adultery by herself. There had to be sin on the part of another person. And he's not there. And this is like a challenge that when we're in that stage two, following the rules kind of a place, we have to recognize the limits of systems of justice. We have to recognize the limits of those rules because it's being applied to the woman who has less power in this society and it's not being applied to the man, as far as we can see. Now, that is an argument from silence. It's possible that he was stoned to death earlier that same morning. I don't know. Um, but it, does, it is interesting that this Bible story shows us this person who is at the fringes, who doesn't have power, being called to account. But we don't seem to see an equality of everybody's just being called to account by the same standard. And that's the thing about Jesus is, like, he recognizes the limits of our humanness. Even when people are trying to do the right thing, it's really easy to do the wrong thing. So with uh, what Jesus says is he says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Or maybe if you remember hearing this story in a prior translation, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And this is like the key verse for stage one and stage three. This is the takeaway. Oh, you cannot judge because you've sinned too. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And they like have a rally around that verse. And then our stage two friends, they rally around a different verse. Do you know what it is? Their verse is, go and sin no more. Go forth and leave your sinful life. The number of articles I've read that point out that Jesus is not saying this sin is okay. She definitely sinned. She gets grace this time, but oh, if she does this again, it's the axe. You know what I mean? Like, we just, we have a way of coming from whatever background we come from and looking at this passage and taking away either Jesus' holiness or Jesus' grace. But in this story, I think Jesus is radically both. He is doing both. He is completely holy and beyond reproach. He has this high standard. But then he is so gracious, and he extends that love to the sinner in the story and even to the judgmental people in that story. His standards are high, and his grace is deep. In fact, when Jesus, um, Jesus' standards about adultery are set even higher than the bar, he sets the bar even higher than Moses does. So you notice the Pharisees, they call back to Moses, and they do this a lot. When they want to be tricky, they're like, oh, well, in the Old Testament it says this. Because they're trying to get Jesus to say, man, I don't like the Old Testament because that's a really good reason why they could like go after him, right? Like you lose political power in ancient Israel among the Jewish people if you go against the command of Moses. But in Matthew 5, verses 27 to 30, Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount, and he says the following about adultery. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it all away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So here we see Jesus, he's not compromising on the standard. He's actually saying more than Moses. Moses says if you commit adultery, there's a punishment, it's going to be a problem. Jesus says if you even think about it, like if your thoughts about this are not right, 
there are going to be dire consequences, so dire that it would be better for, better for your body to be not whole than for your spirit to be subject to the punishment that comes with this kind of sin. So Jesus is both holy, the holiest of holies, and completely loving. So how do we respond to this? This isn't really a sermon about adultery um, at all. There are two key relationships that I think we need this medicine applied to them. And the first is our relationship with Jesus. Jesus is both holy and loving toward you. Jesus is both holy and loving toward me. And we can fall off of both sides of the horse here. So if we focus on Jesus' high standard for us, and we feel like we're failing all the time, and we just and we come to church and we just we show up and we just feel bad. Have you ever been a part of a church experience that's like that, where it's just like we're all going to get to su- together on Sundays, and I'm just going to feel real, real bad for like a while, and then paralyzed. I'm going to go through the motions in my regular life, and next Sunday I'm going to come back and do it all over again. Jesus has so much more for us than this. He has a much more abundant life for us than this. It can also happen the other way. We can focus on Jesus' love and grace for us so much that we don't grow. And so then we're enabled of contributing because we just stay selfish and small and and young and, and immature. Instead, Jesus comes to us with both, and I would encourage us today to lean in to whichever one feels most uncomfortable. So if you're like, oh yeah, I definitely feel, don't feel bad at church. I don't want to just feel bad all the time. Jesus' holiness, okay, but then like he loves, like, you know, like whenever, as you're considering it, like Jesus is holy, he's got a high standard. Yes, I definitely agree with that. Jesus is gracious, he forgives me of everything. I don't know. Like, then that's the the area where we need to get prayer. Or if you feel a lot like Jesus has total grace for you, and then you think about the rules, and you kind of think like, Jesus is mean, like those wolves. Like, then we need to lean into the holiness. Like, Jesus has a high standard that he calls us to, and he wants us to grow, and he wants us to reach for him in times of temptation, and um, as we're developing our character and deciding the kind of action that we take and how we interact with the world. The other key relationships that we need to consider in light of our talk today is our relationship with others. And this is very broad. So is Jesus both holy? If Jesus is both holy and loving, do we live like he is holy and loving toward others? And I can think of just a few key relationships that this might fall into. One is our friends and our families. Here, sometimes we can focus on Jesus' holiness and apply a stricter set of rules to those that we're close to. Have you ever done that? Like you look at um, maybe your parents or maybe a friend that you admire, and because you admire them so much, when they fail, when they fall and miss the mark, you feel like really betrayed. Like, you know, maybe even that, that realization that everybody has to come to at some point that like your parents aren't perfect, it stings, right? Because when you're little enough, if you had a fairly stable childhood, you might have gotten to believing that your parents were perfect. And when you find out that they're not, we can judge our parents because look at how you, you were supposed to, oh no, I can't believe, you know, you know, like we can go through like a whole tumble tumble on this. We can also do it the other way. We can, uh, we can uh, let our friends and our family off the hook. We can hold a high standard for strangers, but to our family and friends, we say, oh, well, but you've got to understand. The thing you've got to understand about my dad, the thing you've got to understand about my uncle, the thing you've got to understand about my sister, I just don't know if they're, you know, you've got to grace, 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 and no holiness. And that's actually not even grace. That's just favoritism, which is corrupt and a sin. So let us not, let us not be guilty of this. Um, and then I think there's a question of, if Jesus, are we living like Jesus is both holy and loving toward those we might consider our enemies? And I put our enemies in quotes 
Because, of course, we have no enemies. Our enemy is not flesh and blood, but powers and principalities. Satan is our enemy. All of humanity is in this together, and we've got to be, we've got to be together in this. But I think that we can get really, um, we can apply standards of holiness and grace to our enemies in a way that's really different, especially if we're thinking of our enemies like people who live far away. We don't know anyone who represents that particular people group. Um, you know, if you're watching the news about Afghanistan, we've heard some things said about Afghans in the last couple of weeks on the news that have been pretty brutal. Um, we've heard some things about immigrants lately, I think with COVID in Texas, some blame game stuff going on there that I think is really unholy. Um, and so when we consider our quote-unquote enemies, are we holding on to that? My enemy is not flesh and blood. Josh and I met with a pastor and his, uh, a couple pastors this week. Um, I think actually he is a pastor and his wife. She's not a pastor, she's a pastor's wife. I'm a pastor and a pastor's wife, so sometimes I get a little sensitive about that. Um, but we met with a pastor and his wife this week, and they are um, doing a lot of work with an organization, uh, Generation Next, and they're church planting among Muslim populations in West Africa. So they're in Cote d'Ivoire, and then they're looking to send some church planters into Mali, and then maybe in the next couple years into Liberia. And these are groups of people that are majority Muslim, and um, maybe speak a lot of languages that are not written down, so a lot of oral cultures. So they're talking about really exciting things like recording Bible stories and doing this thing called discovery, um, um, discovery Bible study or disciple-making movements where you introduce stories about Jesus and start having conversations about Jesus before you seek conversion. And some really remarkable things are happening. They have some really kind of crazy stories. They shared a book with me written by the guy in charge of the organization, and he shares a story about a, a Muslim imam who was struggling with his faith, like struggling with his faith in, in Allah, um, and said, you know, he's, he's following the rules in Islam. He's praying 17 times a day, and um, one thing that, and I didn't, I, don't, I didn't know this about the Muslim faith, was that there's really no guarantee of paradise outside of jihad. Like, if you fight in a holy war, you're going to paradise when you die. But for everybody else, it's kind of like this system of pluses and minuses. And if you ask your imam in the mosque, am I going to go to, to heaven? They're going to say, only Allah knows, because there are no guarantees. And this particular imam was really struggling with that. People were asking him those questions, and he didn't have a good answer for them. And as he asked other religious leaders those questions, they said, oh, it's wrong to question the Quran. And he really got shut down. And he was struggling with this for like years. And then he has a dream, and um, he's told in the dream to wait at this particular place that he knows, and he's shown the face of a man. <laughs> and um, in his dream, he's told, like, talk to this man. He's got all the answers to all of your questions. And so this guy, like, goes out the next day. He doesn't tell his wife what's going on because he doesn't want to, like, let her in on it. I don't know. He's not sure what's going to happen. Um, and he goes to the place, and he stands by the side of the road where it's like a crossroads, and so lots of people are going back and forth, and he's looking, and he's looking, and he's looking, and he spends like all day looking. He's thirsty, he's tired, it's like 12 hours later, did he misunderstand the dream, what's going on? And this guy walks up, and he sees him, he really, he's like, you're the guy! He says, you have to talk to me, you have answers that I need. And the guy happens to be one of these church planters, he's a follower of Jesus, and the guy's kind of tired and also like concerned, because this isn't a mom, there might be the threat of violence. I don't know, but the one guy, he's like, no, you don't understand. I saw your face. I saw you in the dream. You have to give me answers. We have to talk. And so uh, the church planter starts talking to him about Jesus and about the guarantee of heaven, that Jesus died as a sacrifice for our sins. And by this, we can be sure 
of our fate and our future. And we don't have to wait until after we die to experience God's kingdom, but we can begin to experience it even now as God heals our bodies through physical miracles and just as he washes our souls with his grace and the assurance of his love and our belonging. And this guy converts to Christianity, as does his family, and now he's one of these church planters, and they're planting lots and lots of churches in this place where it's not safe even to be a Christian, and they're seeing this remarkable thing. The point that the book makes is, it's easy to look at Islam, or it's easy to look at somebody with a skin color different than yours who speaks a different language than you, than me, than all of us. It's easier for us to look at others and to think, ah, they don't want to hear what we have to say. This is hopeless. This is like a monolithic group. They all think the same thing, and, and they're dangerous. And what about the treatment of women, which, you know, I care. Like, this is the thing that worries me. Like, what, you know, and just like seeing it as like an other kind of a thing. Instead of understanding that those who follow false religions have doubts, and they have emptiness in their hearts, and they need the reassurance of Jesus, and they're craving Jesus just the same way that we do and that we have something to offer in this way, and we have prayers that we can offer that will have an impact on the lives of other people. But we have to love our enemies, as Jesus says. We have to apply the same standards of Jesus' holiness. Of course, we can recognize the false religion as false, but also his love. He has not abandoned the people around the world who aren't following Jesus today. God cares deeply for them and wants us to do all of the things that we can through prayer, through financial support, through mission trips, through whatever God is calling us, however he's calling us to use our gifts, to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's a big deal to Jesus. Lastly, I think we need to ask ourselves, are we living like Jesus is both holy and loving toward the church? And um, there's this caveat that people say to me oftentimes, I think because I'm a pastor, they'll say, you know, the trouble with the church is, and like, not your church, you know, Kara, but the problem with like the church is, and then I go off on like the rant about like, here's what's wrong with everything in the American church. And to be totally honest, like, I can get on that train and I can rant too. Like, we're not perfect. And not even like, we're not perfect, give us a pass, but like, the American church has big problems. <laughs> the white American church in particular, like there has been like a celebration of some white nationalism from within the church, or uh, white supremacy, sorry, and Christian nationalism, and that's a huge problem. Um, sometimes you see corruption. You know, I think it was just earlier last year that one of my heroes, we were talking about it the other day, Ravi Zacharias, we found out after he died that he was guilty of many abuses. Like there's a power imbalance, and then the ways that we respond to it is sometimes wrong, almost, I mean, uh, not almost, the church can be evil sometimes because the church is made up of human beings and we make huge mistakes. And the more people that get involved, the more humanness you have. And we need Jesus to call us to repentance. We need Jesus to heal us and make us whole. We need Jesus to empower us to be good over and over and over again. And this is just a reality of the world that we're in. This is not, I, I will not stand up here and say like, oh, the church is perfect because it's absolutely nowhere close. But it is Jesus' model for community. It is the way that Jesus has decided, has, has, it's the, the mechanism that Jesus has, has used to share the good news of the gospel. And church can be a wonderful and a beautiful thing. And we have to not give the church a pass when we make big mistakes. And we have to not be so hard on the church that we walk away from it and deconstruct our faith because this is something that Jesus has called us to. I saw a friend of mine on Facebook posted... Um, 
kind of an argument that they were having with uh, someone had written an article and, and um, called empathy a sin, and uh, which I, I was a little surprised by, like empathy, like the ability to understand another person's feelings is sinful. And the article was kind of, I like, clicked into it already to be mad at it, right? Because like my friend posted this article and he says it's a bad article, so I'm going to read this article and I'm going to say it's a bad article. And then the article actually made like a couple of the same points that I was making here this morning. So I like, I really like the wind just like went out of my sails and I was deflated like, oh, but I kind of see how it's like a little bit of a point. Like I don't agree with all of it, but you know, and I just, I found myself in this place where there's like my little tribe part of the church fighting with another little tribe in the church. And I want to take my tribe's side, you know? And I think in that, like we can anchor ourselves to our tribe instead of anchoring ourselves to our Lord. But we have to stay centered on Jesus because that's what brings us together in unity. During this time in American history when we're so politically divided, our nation needs us, needs the American church to show the way on how we can express love to one another and have unity with one another even when we disagree about things that feel like a big deal. Later on this fall, we're gonna have a sermon series about emotional maturity. And a big part of emotional maturity is saying, like, I am a self, I am me, I'm not you. You and I have a relationship, and this belongs to both of us, but you're a person and I'm a person, and I can't control you and you can't control me, and we can be different. We can think different. We can have different ideas. We can make different priorities and different choices. And I can say, I love you completely, and I disagree with you completely on X, Y, or Z subjects. And when I tell people, and so far, I'm like six for six, 100% of the responses. When I tell people, series, I'm really excited about it. We're going to talk about unity, agree. And the other person will say, wow, yeah, we really need that. That sounds really good. Like, I've been feeling the need for this, just like in the church as a whole. It's such a divided time in our country, yeah. Unless the person disagrees with me about such and such an issue, in which case, no, straight out. Every single time, every single time, I was like, yes, very good, except for this thing, not that. No, then we just have to break relationship because that is so bad, so beyond the pale. We just can't, we couldn't possibly. So I think, so I think it'd be good for us to explore these ideas. How can we love another person and disagree with them? How can we be holy and loving with like Jesus? How can we, how can we um, submit ourselves to Jesus' standards and still offer grace? to those who are not submitting themselves to Jesus standards or who we disagree about exactly where Jesus standard, like what it requires of us. So I'm really excited about that. I think this is something that we're going to need to spend some time on simply because like this is the, this is the climate that we live in. Like this is the charged atmosphere of the day. And I believe that God has good things that he wants to do in us as we are a part of even the larger body of Christ, the whole church. It says in the Bible that Jesus cleanses the bride of Christ to the church and presents her to himself without blemish. And I think as much as we are aware of those blemishes, the answer is not to have our little tribal rants on Facebook. The answer is not to get into our arguments. The answer is to go to Jesus and say, make us clean. I'm, I'm not without blemish and I need you to make me clean. And that's what Jesus does here. He does it to the Pharisees. He cleanses them. He stops them from being so brutal in, in, in killing this woman. 
He cleanses her. He gives her forgiveness and another chance at her life. And he offers this message of hope to all of us, that when we miss the mark, that doesn't mean that community with God is taken away from us. And when we see another person missing the mark, we're not wrong to understand the standard there. We're not wrong to say adultery is wrong. Adultery is wrong. It'll mess up your life. It'll mess up your kids' lives. It'll bring destruction for all of the people that you care about. But if you have done this, there's restoration in Christ. There's love and there's acceptance and it's real and it can be trusted and we can lean on that. And in that place, we're able to grow and God is able to make changes deep inside of us that then echo throughout all of the circles of influence that we're a part of. So in just a second, I'm going to ask you to stand, not yet, but I'm going to say, I just want to say during our prayer time right now, if anything that's come up during this sermon has made you uncomfortable, I just want to identify that as like, that's like the smoke detector going off, like that annoying like beep, 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 you know, that's God's voice saying, come up and get prayer. Come up and get prayer. If me saying God loves you and he has deep grace for you and you are completely forgiven and you've done no wrong in his sight because he's looking at you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, if that doesn't feel right, if you'd say, well, I don't know, but you don't know me, you don't know how bad I've actually been, you don't know how dark my heart has actually gotten, please come and let Jesus tell you about his great love and grace for you. And if, as we're talking about the wolves and them being mean, you kind of think, like, sometimes Jesus is mean. Like, sometimes his rules are just too mean. And I don't think that I'm okay with that. And I don't know what to do about that because it doesn't fit into everything else I've experienced from Jesus. Please come up and get prayer. I think Jesus wants to make the way straight in all of our hearts. And in point, at points where, we're, where we feel some pain or anxiety or confusion or discomfort, I think Jesus wants to come into those places and invite us into a deeper conversation with him so that he can reveal himself better and more perfectly. And it's possible something bothers you in this sermon and you'll come up and Jesus will say, oh, Kara was totally wrong, just ignore her entirely. Take the best and trash the rest. That's what we do with sermons because she's just a person too. She's also just a human being. So um, at this time, would you stand? Our worship team is going to come up and play one more song. If you like prayer, you can come up to the front after a minute or two, someone will come. They'll put their hand on your shoulders. They'll probably ask if they can first, ask how they can pray with you. And you don't have to do any of the work. It's the best thing that we do here in prayer ministry because you just go up and say, here's my problem, and you stand there, and somebody else is going to bring your request to God on your behalf, and then we'll see God doing all the things that he wants to do.